And tonight we're going to go through an introduction, um, an explanation here of Hebrews. And the first part of this is going to be much like a classroom in which I'll explain some details concerning the book and hopefully whet your appetite for the rest of the study. I know that already I have been encouraged in what I have studied in Hebrews, what I already know to be in Hebrews, and certainly have taught from it on different occasions. But I really want your appetite whet uh, for this book and this study because I think it's going to be a huge help. The main idea, and I need to mention one more thing. If you'd like to follow along with this study, we're using outlines from the expositionary or expositional, Christ-centered expositional commentary. Let me say that right. Christ-centered expositional commentary. We can make sure that you have one. You can read ahead. Uh, Our table group leaders will have those. There's discussion prompts at the end. Um, What I've done is just asked if I'm teaching or whoever is teaching in here, we'll be using that outline. If you read ahead, uh, you're going to have a little more detail. We will not be teaching all the information in the commentary, but we'll be following that outline to make it easy for us all. The main idea of Hebrews is this. God has spoken to his people in many ways, but has now spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of the Father's glory, the agent of creation. The purifying sacrifice for our sins and the king who rules the cosmos from his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. Pretty long definition for a main idea or description, but you'll see it unfold as we walk through this book. The writer of the book of Hebrews wanted to convince the congregation he was writing to of this supreme truth. You may want to write this down at the top of your heading, Hebrews. This is the truth of Hebrews. This is the supreme truth I need tonight. And this is the truth I want everyone who knows me to know. Jesus is better. That's it. Jesus is better. I gave you a long main idea. That's really the main point of Hebrews. The Old Testament laws pointed to Jesus. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, wonderful. Nothing wrong with it. But all of those Old Testament laws, all the teachings of the prophets, the ceremonies that were described were shadows and are useful for understanding the atoning work of God in Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament is necessary for us tonight. Did you hear that? It is necessary. It is important that we New Testament Christians know our Old Testament well. It is important that we understand how the New Testament explains the Old Testament, but we also want to know what the Old Testament says concerning Christ. The title Hebrews is not mentioned in this letter, but long ago, it was believed that this letter was accompanied with a note to the Hebrews, to the Hebrews. And that's how it got its title. It's an apt title because it is to Hebrew people. It is a letter. In the New Testament, we call letters what? Epistles, right? And so the Hebrews is a letter. It's an epistle. 
And its original audience, as I mentioned, are Hebrews or Jewish congregations. Wherever they're located, it's to Jewish congregations, maybe to one congregation in particular, then disseminated to other congregations. There were two types of Jewish people in this congregation. There were believers in the congregation, and there were unbelievers in the congregation. That won't surprise you at all, will because every time we gather on Sunday morning, though we gather for the church and we preach to the church, we recognize that while we're doing that, there are also unbelievers in the church. There were two types of unbelievers in the Jewish congregation, and this is very important to note. There were unbelievers in the Jewish congregation that were almost convinced to leave their Judaism and follow Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is convincing them through his writings, you need to go all the way. Imagine, and it's not hard for some of you to imagine this because it's true of you, growing up in a particular belief system, a religion if you will, and being taught that you need to leave that belief system in order to grab on to that which is better. All the while, You have friends and relatives and support groups that are saying, what are you doing? Why are you leaving us? Was this not good enough for you? That's exactly what a lot of the Jewish people would have been facing as they are leaving all of their traditions, including man-made rules and laws, to embrace Christ and have faith in Him alone. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to convince them. Jesus is better. (laughs) He's better than all of the ceremonial laws, all of those rituals, all of those traditions that you've held near. Were they helpful? They were helpful in so much as they lead you to Christ. There were also unbelieving Jewish people in the congregation that were far from God. Not only were there some close need to be convinced, there were some who were very far from God that you can see at the end of the book of Hebrews, the writer trying to convince them to come to Christ. This passage uh, of Hebrews was written to Jewish people, but let's not forget that it's also for us. Because most of what was going on in the Hebrew church can be seen in even uh, our Gentile church of the 21st century. Lots of philosophies were entering into the Hebrew church that were... um, keeping people or or obstacles for people coming to Christ. It's true in the church today. The Bible tells us that we better be careful. In the last days, people will give themselves over to doctrines of demons. What are those? Well, they're all types. There were some of those happening to the Jewish people that the Hebrew writer is writing to. Maybe it was the legalistic teachings from Judaistic teachers that came into the church that said you have to follow certain traditions in order to be pleasing to God. We're we're sure of that. But there, there were probably also some philosophies being taught in the Jewish congregation that the writer of Hebrews is combating. Uh, there was a particular philosopher by the name of Philo. You may have heard his name. Philo was inspired a great deal by philosophers from Greek society, including Plato. It seems, as we go through Hebrews, that we're going to find that some of the philosophy of Philo, which is kind of a filtered 
Platonic ideology making its way into the congregation, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, be careful about these worldly philosophies. Don't let culture squeeze you into its mold. I would say um, that's relevant for us today, isn't it? Because the 21st century church needs to be careful that it does not allow culture to squeeze it into its mold, but it's happening, isn't it? The church in the 21st century is becoming very post-Christian even in its ideologies. Culture seems to be investing its energies into the church. Uh, We live in a society where we would say, I don't know if you could describe it this way, but I think you could. It's a selfie society. You know what I mean by that? Everything is about me. And therefore, the church capitulation says it is about you. And the cancer of youism is being actually encouraged in church circles so that churches become about us, about you, and not about God. The writer of Hebrews says, look, Jesus is better than all of that, and our religion is to lead us to realize it is about Him. When was this written, this book? Most likely, it was written before the destruction of the Jewish temple. That would have happened in A.D. 70, and certainly after A.D. 30 when Jesus ascended into heaven. Most likely, this book was written around A.D. 60. That's what I think. Uh, I mean, that's not a dogmatic statement. There is no proof of that. But it seems by my study that maybe about 10 years before the destruction of the temple was this letter given to a congregation of people that most likely lived near the Dead Sea. They did live in Israel. They did live in Israel. They have not yet been removed from that country and probably, and we'll describe this in weeks to come, near the Dead Sea. Who is the author of the book of Hebrews? Does anyone know? Okay, good. I heard no, no, no. How many of you think it's Paul? If you think it's Paul, you'd be in good company because that has been the conjecture of the church for most of uh, the church's history. But uh, we don't know who the author is because we're not told. Uh, Was it Paul? Well, there are some ways that it looks like Pauline theology, but there are some differences from Paul's epistles. For instance, there's no salutation in this letter. Paul always made a salutation. Um, The way Paul typically wrote, if you think about it, like the Romans, the letter to the book of Romans, and Hebrews is really closely akin to the letter to the book of, of, of Romans because Romans was doctrine to the Roman Christians and Hebrew is doctrine to the Hebrew Christians. But the way Paul wrote was typically this way. He would spend a lot of time on doctrine and then he would get into application. Think of Ephesians. It's a great example, right? You know Ephesians, the first three chapters, mostly doctrine, the last, the application of that doctrine. Hebrews is unique. Hebrews has doctrine and application, doctrine and application, doctrine and application. So it's not quite Pauline. Uh, vocabulary, the Greek vocabulary, you know, the New Testament written in Greek, uh, is differing from Paul's writing. I mean, you read people's writing, and you know when you read a letter from somebody, you can almost hear their voice. You really don't hear Paul's voice. You see his theology, but you don't really hear his voice. Somebody said it might be Luke, and why is that? Why do some people believe Luke wrote the book of Hebrews? Because it is thought that this is not a letter from Paul, but a sermon of Paul, and Luke copied down that sermon, and what we have is a sermon of Paul. Some 
would say it was Barnabas that wrote this. Martin Luther suggested Apollos. Um, but again, if you think it's Paul, you're in the mass majority. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? I'll tell you. Thank you. I didn't have to tell you. Somebody already told us. The Holy Spirit. Whatever man penned it doesn't really matter. Holy men of God, Peter said, were moved along by the Holy Spirit. We have a letter that was canonized because of this scripture, agrees with scripture, and we know today this is the inerrant word of God. It is the Holy Spirit. So I just want to get that out of the way. Um, let's think about the next, the way in which we need to study this, the prolegomena. What does that mean? Well, it means this. There's an introductory remark that needs to be made about this book, and that is this. We should study the book of Hebrews with our Old Testament open. All right? I just said to Daniel when you were up here, I still have a little orange New Testament I got in the fifth grade. I love that you give out the New Testaments. But when you come here, you're going to need more than a New Testament. On Wednesday night, we're going to have to study the book of Hebrews with our Old Testament open. And this is going to be encouraging. This is where I want to whet your appetite because there is much in Hebrews that explains minor characters and events of the Old Testament. For instance, Melchizedek is made much of in Hebrews, not much of in the Old Testament, but we need to understand who is Melchizedek. There's much that we're going to learn about the Old Testament in the New Testament book Hebrews. Testament, by the way, is a word that is Latin. In the Greek, it is the word theatheke. It is bereath, as you might know in the, in the Hebrew. It just means this. It means a covenant, a promise. The Old Testament is full of promise. The New Testament is that promise fulfilled in Christ. And the New Covenant is superior to the Old Covenant. It's not that the Old Covenant is detrimental or wrong or bad. It's that the new covenant in Christ is better. Here's kind of a, uh, an outline, and we're going to get into the verses and do some exposition here. But an outline of the book of Hebrews, if you're taking notes, we would begin by hearing about the superiority of Christ over everything. That's in our first three verses. We're going to learn how that Jesus is superior to angels. Why is that important? They're very important. And so next week we'll get into that. He's superior to Moses, superior to Joshua, to the Arianic priesthood. He's superior to the Old Covenant. He's superior to all the Old Testament sacrifices. Why? Because we know the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, but the blood of Jesus Christ, it remits all sins. He makes atonement for us all. The superiority of Christ is greater than our faith and all the faith of all the patriarchs. So we're going to look at uh, we're going to look at that. Let's look again at verse 1. Um, verse 1, and then let's just jump in here and go through these three verses, and I'll finish our introduction. I'm going to finish our introduction with some application I think you'll be encouraged by. Uh, if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. If you're taking notes, here's the outline. Hearing God's revelation from long ago. Revelation, if you think about it, is a, it's a gift from God. It's a, it really is a grace gift from God uh, that we're sitting here tonight talking about Revelation and yet actually holding God's Revelation in our hand is a grace gift from the Lord. I couldn't help but think about it again, Randy, as you're talking about people who need the Bible, who stand in line for the Bible. What a gift that is to so many. 
I never want to lose sight of the fact that God's revelation, His self-disclosure to me, to you, is such a gift. He did not have to do this for us. God did not have to do this for us. What God has done for us is invited us into His privacy. He's made Himself known to us. And He's done that through revelation. Long ago, God spoke many times in many ways, and now the point, He speaks in Christ. God spoke many times. He spoke many ways. He spoke through dreams, through visions, through direct conversations with the prophets by moving them along. He spoke to us through these men, but now speaks through Christ. The point is this. The redemption story begins with Christ, and Christ is the beginning of redemption. In other words, to make it kind of down here on the earth, redemption was never an afterthought for God. God did not react to our sin. He had always had planned we would be redeemed from our sin by Jesus Christ. Would this be important for Hebrews to hear? Would this be important for them to hear? The plan of God's always been Christ. Long ago, God spoke in different ways, but He's given His final word through Christ because that's always been His plan. The point also is that all of history is His story. So if you're, if you're listening to Philo and you're listening to the philosophy of men like him in this first century, what you would hear from these philosophers that wrote prior to the first century and now during the first century is that the Old Testament for us Jewish, let's pretend like we're all Jewish people, we're Jewish people and we are grateful for the Tanakh, we're grateful for the Old Covenant, we're grateful for the Old Testament. It is our history. But we don't need to take all of it literally. Some of it's allegorical. Now you're in trouble. And the writer of Hebrews wants those in that congregation to realize, oh no. The Old Testament is God's story of redemption about Christ from beginning to end, from Genesis to Malachi. Already in the first century, secular philosophies entering into the church, and the writer of Hebrews is battling that. And the point is this. Hey, Jewish congregation, remember we're all Jews right now. Is that all right? We're all Jews right now. Not just spiritual, really, all right? Hey, y'all, the Old Testament's really not about our story. It's about his story. So someone creatively said, history is his-story. Old Testament is about Christ. The point then is this, again, one third point here. Many times in many ways, many people, but Christ is the final word. Let me quote Albert Moeller here. It's a long quote. I don't like to use long quotes a lot, but, but if you'll let me do this here just tonight. Here's what he says, because it's really good. Obviously, the author of Hebrews carefully crafted these introductory verses He affirms the authenticity and authority of the Old Testament. The Old Testament continues to function authoritatively for God's people. Yet at the same time as the next verse we're going to see in 2, we see there's far more. The Old Testament is a story in need of a conclusion. 
I want to read that again. The Old Testament is a story in need of a conclusion. What conclusion? The messianic conclusion. The fathers and the prophets indeed spoke the word of God, but that word was not the final word. Christ is the final word. Think about the communication here about revelation. You know what? We have different types of revelation. God unveiling himself or revealing himself. Um, I like to think of it this way. God has revealed himself forensically, intrinsically, and specifically. When I say he has revealed himself forensically, what I mean by that is, if you're a crime scene investigator, Les and I were just uh, going through our Amazon Fire TV, and I was like, look how many CSI shows are on. Man, people are just enamored by crime scene investigation. The crime scene investigators are going in looking for evidence of a crime. They're looking to see if someone has been there. Do we have any evidence that creation has been committed? Is there forensic evidence for creation? It's amazing to walk outside and see the beauty of God's creation and say there has to be a creator. There's forensic evidence that fingerprints are all over this world and all over this universe. And so Psalm 19 tells us that. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, right? There's intrinsic evidence for God. What I mean by that is what Paul says in Romans 1. We all know there's a God inside. All of us know there's truth. Or else where has any moral code come from? We know what's right and wrong. How do we know what's right and wrong? If there's no God, there's no authoritative truth. If there's no objective, absolute truth. Intrinsically, we know there's a God. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. What is a fool? It's not the idiot. It's the guy who doesn't want to admit there's a God. So we all know there's a God, and we have to actually pretend and deny there's no God. Because intrinsically, we know there's a God. But here's what's beautiful. If we had to depend on forensic evidence and intrinsic evidence for God, we'd all still go to hell. But God's been gracious, and he's given us his divine, direct, or special revelation. He's given us specific revelation, not just intrinsic or forensic. And specific revelation has been breathed out, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, by the Holy Spirit. It's the Word of God. It's the New Testament. It's the Old Testament. 66 books, which specifically shows us who God is. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Christ is that final word. All of this new covenant, this new testament is summed up in Christ. So that when you come to the end of Revelation, you're told, don't add anything to this. You don't add anything to this because you can't add anything to Christ. And he's been revealed specifically in this new covenant, this new testament. And therefore, don't look for another revelation or another gospel or another word. So, one, uh, hearing God's revelation from long ago. Two, listening to God's revelation in these last days. Look at verse 2. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Now, there are two epochs here, two periods of time. Long ago, and in these days, God spoke different ways, through prophets and through His men, through His servants. But in these last days, God has spoken through His Son, And he's spoken to his son whom he's appointed heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He's making here, the writer of Hebrews, a connection between the creator and the redeemer. 
the law of the Old Testament, for instance, is instructive and is necessary for the gospel. The prophets informed us that it's necessary to be saved. That's more of a New Testament word, but that salvation is going to come not from just anyone, not from any servant, but from a very particular person, including the one who is called the Creator. In these days, God has spoken through the Creator. In, in days long ago, in the Old Testament, God spoke through servants. Today, He's spoken through His Son. This is important for the writers of Hebrews to express to Jewish people. It's important for us to hear as well. I remember in you 2 Jesus telling the story in Matthew 21 about a tenant who took his servants from the master and beat the master's servant and killed them. And so the master said, I won't send my servants. I will send my son so they will respect him. And here it is that the Son is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ who was sent to be the final Word of God. And the writer of Hebrews, I'm sure, is stressing, don't reject the Son. By rejecting the Son, you're actually rejecting all the servants of the Old Testament. So his revelation is finalized in his Son. Here, creation and redemption are inseparably linked. The writer of Hebrews speaks through God's Holy Spirit to tell us that God has revealed Himself in His Son, and His Son provides redemption and the redemption of that creation that He Himself is responsible for. So we see first in the first verse, we're to hear God's revelation for the long ago. Secondly, listen to God's revelation in the last days. And lastly, verse 3 that we'll cover tonight, see the supremacy of God's final revelation. Look at verse 3. Jesus is, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty. Now, this is so important, not only for the original audience, for us today. What the writer of Hebrews is not saying is that Jesus is just like God. Sometimes we say that and we mean something differently than probably what we're saying, but Jesus does not show us God. Sometimes it's said that way. Jesus shows us God. Nor is He just like God. When you see Christ, you're not seeing what the Father is like. That would be inaccurate. That would be an inaccurate statement to say, when you see Jesus, you see what the Father is like. We say those things, but they're not precise. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. When you see Christ, you see the Father. Is that helpful? There are many who would say, well, Jesus is the Son of God. He's not God. No, He is God. He's not just like God. He's not just to show us what God is like. He is the exact imprint of the God, the Father. Show us the Father. Have I been with you this long and still you don't understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So this is important because... It, you know, on earth, we really don't have a good illustration to this. When you see a son and you see a father, you see rep a representation. Um, Donna Platt gave me a picture one day, and it was 
orange sunset over Doctor's Lake with a father and two boys fishing. And all you could see were the black outline. You couldn't, it was just a, a silhouette picture, beautiful picture. And it was of me and my two boys. And uh, it was, I guess, a photographer took it. We didn't know it. We were out there fishing at Doctor's Lake on the shore, and someone took a picture of us. And, and then they put it, I think, in the clay today. And she saw it, and she said, I know who that is. That's Pastor Scott, and that's his two boys. I can tell by the silhouette. And you can tell that those are my sons, and it, and it was us. Pretty amazing. You see sons, and you can see resemblances of sons, uh, of their father in the sons, I should say. But no son is an exact representation of their daddy. That's good news to my, my two boys, by the way. Any dads want to amen that? Or... But Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. Because when you see him, you see the Father. I think this is helpful for us too as we talk to people. Because if you think about the Hindus, they talk about some sort of way that Jesus has revealed himself through Vishnu or the Muslims talk about Jesus being a great prophet. The Buddhists talking about Jesus being one of the great Buddhas. Or the Mormons talking about Jesus being the son, a son of God and the brother of Lucifer. The JWs, the Jehovah Witnesses, talking about Jesus being less than God. All of them have an idea about who Jesus is. And we can take them to Scripture and say to them, he's not just like God. He's not just a God. He's not just a son of God. He is God. And for the Jewish reader to see this and understand, and they did, the Jewish reader had no problem with this, understanding what Jesus claimed by being the Son of God. By claiming to be the Son of God, he did not claim less than Godhead. He claimed every bit of it. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, you're right. You got it right. That's what he claimed. And he claimed it because he is. And he's powerful. <laughs> Look at this. He holds the world up by his power. Colossians says he holds all things together by the word of his power and able to then make purification for our sin, which was an incredible word for the Jewish people. Who could make purification for my sin? This is major. And after he made purification for sin, he did something that no priest ever did because the priest's work was never done. A priest would offer blood, but that blood would be for a time and he would have to continue to work. But not Jesus. He is the one who made purification for your sin and then sat down. Why? It is finished. Now, the Bible is brilliant. And what I share tonight if it is not clear to you, it's okay because it will become more and more clear as we expand in the book of Hebrews these subjects. Because in the first three verses, we have the writer of Hebrews giving us God's revelation, the author of creation, the doctrine of the Trinity, the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament, and vice versa. We have Christology and the atonement in three verses. This is not a man-written book. Only God could be this brilliant. So then, give me some, some, something I can take home for tonight. This has been more of an instruction. I will, uh, just for a moment. It, uh, let, me give you, let me give you three, three take-homes, okay? We're going to learn how to live the Old Testament in the New Testament light. That's going to be helpful. 
And one of the ways that we're going to do this is to realize in the Old Testament, there was always a hope for fulfillment, fulfillment of promises and prophecies. What is God said going to happen? It's going to continue to happen. I still believe with all of my heart, there are precious promises made to Israel that God will keep. In other words, the Old Testament was forward-looking. It was looking to a conclusion, looking to the one who would come and bring all of what God had promised to pass. And we as believers live that same way. We're grateful for our past and our history, and we have testimonies of God's goodness in our life. We have scars to show the hurts and the battles that we've gone through. But we are a forward-looking people, aren't we? If all you do is look in the rearview mirror, you're going to wreck. We are not to be that way as Christians. Paul said, even my accomplishments, I'm leaving in the dust. I count as dung compared to reaching for the prize of Christ. I was reading this in my quiet time, and I had, this just jumped out at me how that in Genesis 50, in Genesis 50, Joseph is with his brothers. We, I think, know the story of Joseph, and if you do not know the story of Joseph, come to Bible study groups on Sunday morning, and you're going to learn the story of Joseph. It is one that you will be so glad that you have studied. You can read it for yourself. It takes up the majority of the book of Genesis, and the last chapter is where Genesis tells us Joseph is with his brothers, and his brothers had done Joseph wrong, bad wrong. Joseph had bad feelings toward them, and they had bad feelings toward him. Don't think just because Joseph at the end says, God meant this for good, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, that there weren't struggles in Joseph's life up to that point. He was a man like us, recognizing in the end, oh my goodness, God has done amazing work. What Joseph had was was, was taken away from him. He had a great mom and dad, a family, a home. All of that ripped away from him. But when it was ripped away from him, he finally became somebody. God raised him up as the prime minister of Egypt. And while he's there in Egypt, having had his family stripped away, his home stripped away, even his reputation at one point stripped away, was now made the prime minister of Egypt. All the riches, the glory, anything he could want, except one thing. He still didn't have his family. And so God brings a famine in the land, and his family has to come to Egypt to beg for food, and they find out Joseph is there, and they're the ones who've sold him into slavery, and they're troubled in their spirit, because now the one who is in charge of the entire land has the ability to take from them their own lives. If you know the story, and I'm shorthanding it here, Joseph forgives them. But they're really not convinced that Joseph has forgiven them. They're living in Egypt. They're living in Egypt with Joseph as prime minister. They're in that land knowing Joseph at any time could exact vengeance on them because they sold him into slavery. But dad's in the land. As long as dad's here, we're good. Until dad dies. And the brothers say, well, dad's gone. Now Joseph is going to do what we think he's going to do and give us what we know we deserve. He's going to kill us. And when they go to Joseph and they say to Joseph, please don't, please don't. We deserve vengeance, but please don't. Joseph weeps. And he says, am I in the place of God? There's this beautiful reconciliation that finally is completed. 
And I know this because of what Joseph says and then what Joseph does. The brothers think, dad's gone, he's going to kill us. They go beg for their life. Joseph says, am I in the place of God? You're going to live here with your kids. And now Joseph has what he's always wanted, real family. He has more than that. He has more than a real family. He has a future. This is what's awesome in Genesis 50. At the end, he tells his brothers, we're not always going to be in Egypt. We're going to get out of here. And when you leave, you make this promise to me. You take my bones with you. What Joseph knew was God had given him a promise for the future, and that that future was a promised land. And though he may not live to see that day, he knew that day was coming, and he did not want his bones buried as a mummy in Egypt. He wanted his bones in a promised land. Okay, what's that all about? Think about it. Before there was reconciliation in the family, there was concern about the past. Concern about the past because the past would bring judgment. But when forgiveness was finally completed, not only could this family really be a family, they could talk about a future. And Joseph talked to his family about the future, not the past. There's so many applications even to that, right? If you have unforgiveness in your heart towards someone and you forgive them, now there's reconciliation. And you don't have to keep bringing up the past and dredging up what's been done. But think about these Hebrew Christians and unbelievers that the writer's writing to. He's saying to them, y'all, don't you understand? Reconciliation is found in Christ. And when you embrace the forgiveness of Christ, you have your past forgiven and you have your future secure. And the writer of Hebrews is going to tell them about people who did stuff like that, like Moses, who thought about the future. Or it was, in fact, Moses who said, I would rather have the reproaches of Christ than the riches of Egypt because he could see the city that was God's. Abraham saw a city that was God's, I should say. Abraham saw a future by faith. Here's what we have in Christ, church. This is what the Jewish people needed to hear. In Christ, you have forgiveness and reconciliation. And when you have forgiveness and reconciliation in Christ, you have real family. This is why you come to chapter 10 of Hebrews, and Hebrews says, hey, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but even so much more as you see the day approaching. Why? Because we have to encourage each other, and we have to stir each other up into good works. We are family, y'all. And we've been brought into a family by Christ. We have a reconciliation in Christ, and we're family. We'll struggle as family. We'll hurt each other as family, but we can forgive each other as family because we're family. And because we're family in Christ, we all have a future together. It's beautiful. That's one takeaway. Number two, the next two will not be as long as that. (laughs) This is beautiful. Hey, Hebrew people, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and you know why? Hebrews 13, 8. 13.5. 13.5. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Why? Hebrews 13.5. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Why? Because the God of the Old Testament is the God who doesn't change. The God of the New Testament is the God who does not change. And that God who never changes has promised to come and to be with you and to never leave you or forsake you. This is why I think it's important for us to study the book of Hebrews because sometimes people read the Old Testament and they think the God of the Old Testament is so much different than the God of the New Testament. No, 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 he's not. We have one God who never changes and is faithful throughout all generations and has made a promise to never leave us or forsake us. Thirdly, this is the kind of back to the beginning, bringing it full circle. Jesus is better. He's just better. There's a little book that uh, you can buy for your children, especially your little boys. It's, it's titled, God is Better Than Trucks. When I was a little boy, the reason I like that is because when I was a little boy, all I could ever dream of is having a Chevrolet truck one day. But the reality is Jesus is better than anything. He's better than money. He's better than material possessions. He's better than any relationship that you have or want. He's better than sexual freedom. He's better than any dream that you hope to secure. He's better than any religion that you try to follow. He's just better. Jesus is better. The psalmist said, taste and see that the Lord is good. And the longer you're saved, the more you know he's better. He's just better. I hope that you'll come and study the book of Hebrews with us every week because we're going to see how Jesus, not only is he better, we just recognize he's better. He never gets better. We just get to know about his betterness better. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we have tonight uh, to look at this incredible book of Hebrews. Bless our fellowship to follow our time with the poop bards. And and God, I pray that you'll bless every class that's going on. Those without Christ tonight would recognize that Jesus really is better. And he is the only way of salvation. There is no other way. All religions talk about Jesus, but Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. There's no way to God except through Jesus, who is the only redemption, because he is the creator who makes redemption available through his sacrifice. He is the exact representation of God. There is no other salvation outside of Christ. Those who need to be saved, I pray they will be. In Jesus' name, amen.